So, Miles, have you ever noticed how much time the X-Men spend underground? You know, Jay, it makes sense that they'd operate Sub Rosa, given the whole world that hates and fears them deal. No, no, I mean, literally underground. Like, the Morlocks live in the sewers, you got a tunnel to the Savage Land, there's, there's the whole brood trouble in the Big Easy thing, and I mean, half the Xavier Mansion is basements and sub-basements. Point. They even operated from the ruins under the mansion for a pretty long time. Given that, it's kind of surprising it took them so long to find Greymalkin. The lane? It seems pretty clearly marked. It's where the school is. No, I mean the mutant kid buried alive under the mansion. The hell? In the 18th century. What?! I'm Jay Edited. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 408 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Well, since you've been back, we've done a bunch of minus issues. We did one mainstream continuity episode with X-Factor, and now we're doing a miniseries. Sounds like the 90s. It does sound like the 90s, yes. And of course, in the 90s, I'm not going to say no one was a bigger deal, but few characters were a bigger deal than time-traveling super cop Lucas Bishop. That's right. This is his third miniseries we will have covered from the 1990s. And we'll get to everything about the series, but like you mentioned, Bishop's a time traveler, and he comes from an alternate future, the alternate future of Earth 1191. So maybe we should go back to the past of the future, his past, our future. Are we past his future yet in 2023? Anyway, maybe we should talk about where and when he comes from. Alright, so remember Days of Future Past, the alternate future timeline of Earth 811? This is the one that Rachel Summers comes from. Uh, yeah, the one where humans created sentinels to protect them from mutants, and then the sentinels decided the best way to do said protection was to enslave everyone and put all the mutants into concentration camps. Right, so Earth 1191 is an alternate future timeline that branches off from that alternate future timeline. Alternate alternate future? Right. So, in that timeline, in Earth 1191, humans and mutants rose up together in the Summer's Rebellion to free the world from the sentinels. And... Even after the mutant concentration camps were closed and the worst of the wrongs were relatively right and there was some degree of accord formed, there was still pretty significant strife between humans and mutants. That's a lowercase strife spelled the normal way, not the guy with the blades on his head. Although he would be kind of uncomfortable to have between you two. Yeah, fair point. So, thus, the XSE were created. They were mutant cops to police mutant criminals. That first stood for Xavier School Enforcers, but then uh, Marvel realized at some point that that made them sound like they were really heavily armed hall monitors and changed it to Xavier Security Enforcers, which makes them sound like heavily armed rent-a-cops. The XSC were led by a woman named Hecate, but its most well-known members were the Omega Squad, that being Lucas and Shard Bishop, siblings who grew up in the camps, and Malcolm and Randall, two mulleted dudes who would follow Lucas anywhere. Eventually, all of them would end up back in the present of Earth-616, where Malcolm and Randall would be killed fairly quickly. Um, Bishop would 
you know, join the X-Men and his sister Shard, or at least a solid light hologram of his sister Shard taken from an imprint of her memory around the time that she died in the future, uh, joined X-Factor. Seems clear. I mean, no, she's solid light, so she's usually opaque. (laughs) Nice. But for now, we are squarely in their past, which is to say, our future. I think. So we mentioned this miniseries was the third XSE slash Bishop miniseries, and it is, and it's weirdly obscure. It barely exists on the internet. Before we write episodes, I always Google the uh, comics we're talking about, go to a few of my favorite sites, and almost no one remembers that this one existed, which is a little strange because it's maybe the best of them. So I've got a theory about that, and actually this this dovetails with something else I wanted to talk about, which is why Bishop was such a popular subject for miniseries during this era. And I think the answer to both of those is the same, which is that it doesn't tie to larger continuity. Right, so you just get this future dystopian sandbox to play in. Right, you get a future timeline to play in that's that doesn't have any or, or has very, very few of the tangles of the approvals of the you know, character dynamics of the, the existing decades and decades and decades of continuity that, that Earth 616 does. And you can just, you can, you can tell, you know, future sci-fi cop stories in it um, with, with some mention back to the X-Men and the connection back to that team. But you've got a lot more freedom to play. And I think on one hand, that makes it a pretty appealing setting. On the other hand, it makes it much, much harder to market. And, with a concept like that, you've got to have something that's really, really superlative to stand on its own effectively. And this is good. Like, this is not a bad comic. This is, this is, this is a really fun read. But I don't think that it necessarily breaks new ground in the ways that it would have to. And yet, even then, it's not a guarantee. I'm thinking of Wolverine killing. Yeah, yeah, which nobody remembers. Well, hopefully more people do since we covered it that one time. But that makes a lot of sense. I, I agree. Because when you're doing an XSE story, when you're doing a story set in Earth-1191, you know how it ends. Shard gets killed, Bishop and Malcolm and Randall head back to the present, chasing Trevor Fitzroy. And we know that the origins of Lucas and Shard have been established. They were raised in the mutant concentration camps. And so you have this room to play in, but it can't say anything all that new. It can't cha- really change continuity. And in a shared universe, I feel like people talk so much about whether a story matters or not, whether a story really changes continuity. So for something that's purely a flashback, yeah, that is going to be a harder sell for somebody to dig way back into the 90s to want to read something. And structurally, this one's a little different than we've seen before. So the first Bishop miniseries, that was just set in the presence of Earth-616, easy enough. The XSE miniseries, as opposed to this, the Bishop colon XSE miniseries, but the XSE miniseries basically covered Shard and Lucas's entire lives in Earth-1191 from when they were kids until shortly before Lucas left. This one right here is a much more compact story. This takes place, I think, sometime during number three of the original XSE miniseries. Yeah, it would have to be. Yeah, so that would be after Shard joined Bishop and Malcolm and Randall in Omega Squad, but before she was promoted and then shortly thereafter killed. So this is a very self-contained story. It doesn't even have the present-day framing story that the XSE miniseries had. This is just like an episode of a cop show, an episode of a police procedural. And as such, I love it. 
But you're right. As a part of the vast X-Men tapestry, I think a lot fewer people are going to care about that, especially in retrospect. Which brings us to Bishop XSE number one, Rook Takes Pawn. This is written by John Ostrander, penciled by Steve Epting, inked by Mark Prudeau, colored by Brad Vancata, lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft and Albert Deshane. Hey, John Ostrander. Uh, we like him. He did the XSE miniseries. And I also like that we have Steve Epting here. We've talked a lot about how much we love Steve Epting's art. It's also just nice to have a consistent artist. The XSE miniseries had tons of different artists and really suffered for it. This one feels much, much more consistent. Totally. So we open in the distant future of Earth-1191, obviously, where siblings Bishop along with Malcolm and Randall and Randall's mustache are about to burst into a hostage situation at a party. Maybe we should have a Rocop roll call here and talk about who these four astonishingly coiffed individuals are, wearing the usual X-Men blue with yellow highlights, but like a more militaristic version, and red bandanas for some reason, and mullets everywhere. These guys are Omega Squad. Uh, they are they are an XSE squad, and on that team is Bishop. Bishop has a massive curly black mullet, and he can absorb energy from various sources and channel them out in blasts. He is the leader of Omega Squad, and certainly by far the most well-known character who is on the team. Accompanying Bishop is Malcolm. Malcolm has a feathery red blonde mullet, and he wears these big blaster gauntlets that are, like, super rad. His mutant power is to detect baseline humans. Very specific. He's from an idle rich family, and so he really wants to prove himself, to prove that he can, you know, earn his position through merit and dedication. He's very by the book. The, the other half of the, the odd couple with Malcolm is Randall. Randall has a long blue-black ponytail mullet and a pretty impressive, suave, debonair mustache. He can neutralize harmful radiation through his own body. Again, an okay-ish power. Uh, he's this wise-cracking dude, the Crow-T robot, if you will, of Omega Squad, and he uses references to the old X-Men all the time. He'll come up with quotes from various former X-Men. Unlike Crow-T robot, Randall fairly frequently actually does get to decide who lives and who dies. So true. Finally, breaking the mullet pattern is Shard, who sports a blonde rat tail and bowl cut because she's a rebel. Yeah, she doesn't have a red bandana either. Damn, impressive, Shard. I mean, I think you're missing out on the mullet thing, but that's a good look, too. Shard's power is converting ambient light into blasts, which makes me think you could come up with a pretty good Rube Goldberg weapon between her and Dazzler. Oh man, that would be awesome. I mean, with mutant circuits being such a big deal these days, although whether or not... The Krakoa era would resurrect Shard, who was from an alternate timeline and only ever came to Earth-616 as a hard-light hologram with the imprint of Shard's memories? I don't know. That's an ethical question that I'm not sure if we'll see answered. Would they be able to? Does Shard, like, hologram Shard reg even register on Cerebra? I don't know, and would she have been able to be backed up if she was from a different timeline? I mean, they're starting to add weirder and weirder stuff that can be done there between uh, Cerebra, who we briefly alluded to last episode, and between what the Scarlet Witch did. Well, being from a different timeline wouldn't preclude it, because you can back up Bishop. True, true, but Bishop spent a lot of time at Earth-616. I believe technically Shard never did when she was alive. Right, and so that's what sort of the interesting question would be, what it would mean to resurrect Shard as opposed to to keep solid light hologram Shard around. Like, at what point do you qualify them as having been two, as, as having been two separate people? Right, yeah, no good question. I mean, solid light Shard uh, died a long time ago in present continuity, but what is death, really, in an X-Men comic? 
anyway, I feel like we're digressing, although now I'm just going to be thinking about this all day. I mean, this is this is what we do. We we dig into the weird existential paradoxes of continuity. <laughs> yup. Less weird and existential is the party that the XSC is getting ready to, um, well, not attack, to defend. Um, this is an event thrown by a gentleman named J. Jerome Knox. Knox is a rich dude who's dedicated his life to improving human-mutant relations, which is why his party is now being held hostage by the Fanatics, spelled with an X, um, who are a group of mutant supremacists. So we were introduced to the Exhumes, or Exhumes, Exhumes? I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it, because it's X-Men, so the X, I feel like, is going to be harder. Anyway, we met those in the XSE miniseries, and then uh, Howard Mackey managed to confuse them for the M-Plates in X-Factor recently. But the Exhumes are basically this. They're basically a group of mutant supremacists who don't like that everyone's at peace now. They're kind of like a uh, less spiky version of the Mutant Liberation Front from the present day. So the, the fanatics with an X are, are an entirely new group. We haven't seen any of these guys before. Who's on the team? Oh, I love them all. I mean, they're horrible, horrible people. They murder everybody, but I love them all. So their leader is Pulsar. He's got these, like, gun arm attachment things and a silly haircut and face paint that makes him look kind of like the Captain America villain Nuke. But the, the big M on his face, which I assume is meant to evoke the M mutant brands that mutants had in the camps, it just makes him look like Sergeant Hatred from the Venture Brothers. You're absolutely right, and I did not make that connection at all. Do you think he's got, like, mutant tattooed down his entire body? Oh, yeah, if you were to strip down, like, that last T would be right over Lil Pulsar. We've also got Dogface, who is exactly what it says on on the tin. That's it. That's his thing. Yeah, yeah. Shut a dog face. He barks sometimes. Uh, one of my favorites is Hardball, who's a big shirtless dude, covered in these, like, Frankenstein-y, big, thick, sewn-up scars. Uh, and he's just huge, and everything about him is huge. His ammo belt looks like it's full of freaking fire extinguishers. But the best part, so his name is Hardball. He's got those giant stitchy scars. It's like the stitching on a baseball. He's like a giant baseball man with a big gun. It would be much funnier if he were, like, white and red. Oh, that would be great. Oh, okay, Hardball, if he ever comes back, if noted memorable villain Hardball, who survives for, like, three pages, ever comes back, uh, Marvel, you know what to do. Does he really make it three whole pages? Yeah, something like that. Uh, anyway, next we have Razorback, a gentleman who shoots bright red spines out of his back. And we have Kali, a blue lady, who looks a lot like the Hindu goddess Kali, but has an assault rifle. Finally, we have Shadowbox. Shadowbox is a teleporter of sorts who, who teleports by way of shadows, which is pretty cool. And whose design reminds me a very little bit of, of uh, Echo from originally from Daredevil. Oh yeah, because she's got that blue kind of tattoo thing over one eye and she's wearing all black leather. Well, and the, the marking on her face is a little bit handprint shaped. Uh, true. It looked more like a lightning bolt to me, so I was thinking of her like if Ziggy Stardust was from the World of Darkness, but I think you're more correct. Anyway, the only two of these you actually need to remember are Shadowbox and Pulsar, because everyone else gets killed almost immediately. Yeah, yeah, uh, they are not necessarily deliberately killed by the XSE, but No, they they're deliberately died. killed by the XSE. Like, it, it, it says specifically that the X, early on that the XSE's orders are, are to kill them. Okay, I, I wasn't sure, because, like, at one point, somebody dodges out of the way, and one of the villains shoots another one of the villains. 
But yeah, this is inconsistent between the various XSE stories. Like, when Bishop first appeared in the present and joined the X-Men, one of his big conflicts with the X-Men was that he was used to killing bad guys, and they were very anti-killing. But in recent X-Factor, we saw a flashback to Shard's past, in the future, where the XSE was very much capture-only, never kill unless you absolutely have to. And it seems like in this series, we're somewhere in the middle. If somebody's really, really evil, you kill them. Otherwise, you do your best to capture them. But if they die in the process, well, it's not the worst thing in the world. The fight also gives Randall an opportunity to... It says, quote, Bobby Drake, but I'm pretty convinced that he's just fucking with, with his teammates at this point. As Bobby Drake, the renowned Iceman, may have said... Is it just me, or is it getting a little hot in here? Like, I, I, it's the may have said that does it. Because it's like, as Bobby Drake and several million other people over the years may have said, it's like, I, does, does he just do that for, for common things? Like, when he, when he goes into restaurants, is he, is he like, as Charles Xavier may have said, I'll have a glass of the Merlot. Okay, to be fair, I bet Bobby Drake did say, is it just me, or is it getting a little hot in here, like, all the time? That seems like more of a pyro line. Like I, Bobby Drake tended tended to be more more recursive in his 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 um, riffing on his powers. I suppose so. It's a high stakes badass firefight at this human mutant unification party. So there are the thematic high stakes. It's life and death, literally. It's really a great showcase for just how impressive the XSER like. These are super cops. They're not just regular cops. And I don't know. I feel like we should say. The XSE should certainly be seen as propaganda. I think we just kind of have to accept that as we're talking about this story. Yeah, I I never really know how to feel about the relationship of, of superheroes, and especially superhero teams, to that. And the XSE walks that line a little closer than most. But yeah, so... They manage to save Mr. Knox, only for Randall to suddenly shoot him. Um, at this point, Mr. Knox immediately decomposes into dust, and Randall immediately gets very confused because he doesn't remember what he just did. And can't fathom why he would have done it. Yeah, so the rest of the XSE is very confused and concerned, and arrests Randall, and Mr. Knox just remains there on the ground as a big pile of dust, just like when Graydon Creed was very thoroughly shot at his uh, big campaign speech. It's, it's, it's very like vampires getting staked in Buffy, as, as effects go. It's true, it's true. That was a very powerful gun that Randall had. Maybe he forgot to uh, keep the setting on reasonable and turned it up to OMG WTF BBQ. Spoiler, the disintegration is actually a clue as to what's actually going on. Jinkies. Back at headquarters, the remaining squad watch an interview with a fellow named Selden Trask of the Human Defense League. And his, his, his original name isn't Trask. He's actually taken the name Trask in honor of the creator of the Sentinels. Um, and he is calling for the dismantling of the XSE in light of Knox's assassination. And, like, for branding mutants on their face with the letter M again and stuff? Okay, taking the name of Trask, like, yes, I understand he's worried about humans in this future, but, dude, you just took the name of the guy that built the robots that demolished almost your entire civilization. Also, do you really want to be named after an anthropologist? God, I mean, seriously, have some respect, Selden. Now, the rest of the squad 
believes Randall, or at least they want to, and they, plus Hecate, who's the leader of the XSE, start looking into psionics and shapeshifters. Um, all of them were accounted for. There's, there's no sense of who might have done this, but there's one notable anomaly that sticks out, and that is the fact that the number of humans and mutants present at the party before Knox's death is exactly the same as the number after he died. I really like this part. I like that these XSE officers are sitting around going through the facts, coming up with theories, looking through records. Like, it feels like detective work. It feels like they're not just a bunch of mulleted folks with giant guns. I want a series where the XSE goes after financial crimes. Oh, man. White-collar crimes of Earth-1191. Like, all of these people with briefcases looking shady with their giant business mullets. That's how you take down the Hellfire Club. That's true. That's true. I mean, they got Capone for tax evasion. And, well, uh, current events as we record this, we'll see how that plays out. So anyway, um, our, our team's news broadcast is interrupted by a commotion in the holding cells because the fanatics have shown up to break Randall out. Um, and the, the squad goes down and try to stop, tries to stop him, and Randall's like, no, you know, how do you know? You don't know me that well. This might be the real me. Shoots Malcolm and then gets teleported away by Shadowbox. Shit. Except whether that's the real Randall is immediately thrown back into question because at at his and Shadowbox's destination, he's again amnesiac and is confronted immediately by a perfect doppelganger of himself. Yeah, and we find out that this other Randall is in fact someone named the Rook, a mutant with the power to grow new bodies from plant-like materials and embody them. Although the bodies that are grown don't last too long. Well, and growing the bodies isn't part of the mutant power. Oh yeah, I guess the rook just has sort of a... It's it's just controlling them. Yeah, big big body-growing machine. You know, just like anyone would have in their basement or guest room. Um, and, and the way that the bodies disintegrate is very, very evocative of the way that um, Mr. Knox's body disappeared when Randall shot him. The mm. plot sickens. Anyway, rook's gonna take down the XSE... But to do that, they've got to destroy Bishop first. Rook. Bishop. And Randall mentions that Rook's power is kind of like castling, a thing in chess which I only kind of understand. I appreciate the thematic consistency here. Well, Rook is going for a very, very specific look here, and that's because Rook is angling for a seat in the inner circle of the Hellfire Club. Because we get a scene earlier that takes place there where a woman calling herself Annabella Knox approaches Anthony Shaw, the latter of whom may or may not be proof that Shinobi Shaw eventually did a sex. Oh yeah, Anthony Shaw, he's the father of utter shithead Trevor Fitzroy, and indeed runs the Earth-1191 equivalent of the Hellfire Club, because if anybody can survive the collapse of civilization thanks to giant robots, it's a bunch of rich jerks. Well, it's, it's not just the... Equivalent of it's it's just literally the Earth eleven ninety one iteration of the Hellfire Club. Yeah, it's just kept going. Yeah. Now Annabella wants into the inner circle, and is already rather presumptuously calling herself Rook. We're really missing some pieces here, though. Like, let's bring in Hannibal King from Tomb of Dracula, the Goblin Queen, the Knights of Vundagore, and uh, I guess Eric Killmonger back when he went by Pawn. I couldn't find any good pawns in the Marvel universe. Yeah, there's a reason for that. Fair. Anyway, uh, Annabella Knox, Rook, tells Anthony that she's going to prove herself by taking down the XSE to enable mutant supremacy. 
And that brings us to Bishop colon XSE number two, Rook versus Bishop. Written once again by John Ostrander, penciled by, once again, Steve Epting, but also Nick Napolitano, inked by Mark Prudeau, Robert Jones, Andrew Pepoy, and Steve Moncuse. That's a lot of inkers. Colored by Brad Von Cotta, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Saida Temafonte. And we open, I love this opening, we open with the dedication of the new Statue of Liberty. It's been restored after the Sentinels' destruction during their horrible robotic reign. It's an exact recreation, but now there's a new Bay Borough, a new borough of New York City where the Upper New York Bay was, because there's just too much city in there. It's like Coruscant. And the mayor of New York dedicates it as a symbol of hope and peace between humans and mutants. He says that as the mayor of New York, he's proud. But the fanatics show up, and Shadowbox says, as they start shooting everybody, him included, As mayor of New York, you make a nice corpse. This is very violent. So many people are getting killed. So many. And then they knock the Statue of Liberty over, presumably onto a bunch of people. What a way to go. Um, one, one camera operator who sticks around manages to capture their leader taking off his helmet after the attack, and yep, it's Lucas Bishop. Well, shit. Also watching all of this is the aforementioned Anthony Shaw. He's watching the flames from the Hellfire Club. And here's where we see where the Hellfire Club is. It used to be that they just had a fancy building on a fancy street in New York City. Now it is a full-on floating island, a big old mansion with a bunch of trees around it floating above the city. It's just this perfect capitalistic excess. I love it. I mean, I hate it, but I love it. And he has summoned the actual bishop over to tell him that Annabella Knox wants to destroy the XSE so mutants can rule over humans. Because Anthony Shaw has decided, well, he doesn't like the XSE, he doesn't like Annabella Knox, so he might as well just pit them directly against each other and then come out on top himself. Which is a very Hellfire Club thing to do. The Hellfire Club has only ever cared about power. I mean, remember, it was Sebastian Shaw himself, the first Shaw we ever met, that partially funded the Sentinel program. Like, he didn't care about mutant rights, he just liked money and influence. It's also Anthony Shaw who tips Bishop off that he might want to check the news before heading back to XSC headquarters, which is how Bishop discovers that he has just led a terrorist action. Yep. So, Hecate, the leader of the XSC, sends our by-the-book mulleted buddy Malcolm to go apprehend Bishop. I mean, everyone's pretty sure that Bishop and Randall are innocent, but, you know, the XSC needs to keep up appearances. They need to not be seen as showing favorites to their officers. Shard is assigned to monitor duty because she is emotionally compromised. I mean, fair enough, she is. And she's pretty pissed, which she takes out on her brother Lucas when he sneaks up on her to ask her for help with clearing his name. And I really like seeing Bishop being all sneaky and stuff. Like, he seems to almost be having fun with it, getting to finally operate outside the rules, but, like, for a good, righteous, just reason. I'm going to do some street work. Maybe make this outlaw status work for me. If they ask, I was never here. As for where he goes to use that outlaw status... Well, if you guessed he was going to beat up petty criminals in a bar, as cops on the edge generally tend to do, yep, exactly that. Every time a piece of superhero media does this trope, it takes me straight back to the Justice League Unlimited episode Flash and Substance, and I just want to yell at them. Oh, the one with the best barroom brawl ever, which also happens to be in space? No, no, that is, um, that's comfort and joy. 
Flash and Substance is the one that's that's about the Flash, the Flash Museum opening, and a bunch of uh, Flash goons are going to try to kill Flash there. And um, he gets Batman and, I think, Ryan to come with him to try to figure out what's going on, but also to come to the, the museum opening. And they, they start by heading to the bar where Flash knows that all of the villains hang out, and Trickster's there, and I think either Batman or Ar- Batman and Orion collectively are about to to you know threaten him and Flash is like what the hell is wrong with you and just sort of sits him down and talks to him. Oh yeah. Yeah, the Justice League animated version of Wally West is so wonderful. He has such a good heart. He's also got just all he's the, like all the best episodes are Flash episodes. Like that one, the Great Brain Robbery. And even the Justice Lords arc is indirectly based on Flash. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, oh, God, I know, I know that there's, because of the live-action show, there's, like, a whole generation for whom Barry Allen is the Flash again, but, like, you gotta understand, for for a lot of people our age, like, animated Wally West is the Flash and always will be. Yep, Wally West is the Flash, John Stewart's Green Lantern, uh, John with an H, not the other one from TV, different TV. Anyway, we're a Marvel podcast, we should probably get back to Marvel. Seriously, though, Flash and Substance, best episode, so good. Yeah. So the bar in question in this case is called Morlocks, which, you know, for a future X-Men timeline, it's a good name for a bar full of various misfits and such. Various misfits with names like Toaster and Booger. Okay, this is a future full of, like, laser blasters and flying cars and impressive mullets, and this dude couldn't come up with a better name than Booger. Dude, that is not a name you give yourself. I guess so, but that just makes me feel even worse for him. You know what? I'm going to do him a favor. Booger is now named Spectre Blade, now and forever. So anyway, before Bishop can seriously maim or kill anyone, Shard calls. Uh, Yeah, saved by the wrist video phone, am I right? Uh, She hasn't found any leads in the directions they discussed, but she did learn that in the before times, before the Sentinels fucked up the world... There was a group called S.H.I.E.L.D., who are kind of like the predecessors to the XSE, if less mutant-specific. It's very weird that the X-Men are like central history, and S.H.I.E.L.D. is like relegated to a footnote. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. S.H.I.E.L.D. was utterly annihilated, and the XSE only really came out of the memory of the X-Men of Xavier's dream. Like, that's what so many mutants in the camps had to hold on to. And, of course, the Summer's Rebellion was started by someone with a very strong connection to the X-Men. Point, point. So apparently S.H.I.E.L.D., before they were stomped on by big purple robots, made something called LMDs, Life Model Decoys. We've seen those all the time, of course. But apparently right before they got robot stomped, they had created an organic version that was indistinguishable from actual human life. The only problem is, those versions tended to, you guessed it, decay and then disintegrate. Bum bum bum. Shard has also learned about the Knox family. You know, J. Jerome Knox, the guy that got disintegrated when he was shot by the fanatics, and Annabella Knox, the woman who goes by the Rook. Apparently, Jerome's will was changed right before his death to give everything to his niece, Annabella, and she's about to go to the courthouse to make that happen. Additionally, Shard has found out that Jerome's wife and kid died in a car accident and were cremated with no investigation immediately thereafter. Um, not only that, but the kid's body was allegedly already significantly decomposed. Hmm. The plot continues to sicken. So Omega Squad knows Omega Squad. 
So it's no surprise that Malcolm, of course, knew that Lucas would get in touch with his sister Shard for help while Shard was assigned to monitor duty. And Malcolm's there waiting to arrest her and to go off to meet Bishop because Malcolm heard the whole conversation. Damn it, Malcolm. And indeed, the XSE converge on Bishop as he prepares to capture Annabella outside the courthouse. Lucas does pretty well for himself. I mean, he blows up a cop hover cycle without hurting the cop on it, and then grappling hooks over to another roof. But again, Omega Squad knows Omega Squad, and Malcolm is waiting there for him with a gun pointing directly at him. Well, shit. Do you think their mullets can sense each other? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think mullets are a hive mind. Kind of like, you know, fungus. That brings us to Bishop XSE number three, Final Ploy, written by John Ostrander, penciled by Steve Epting, inked by only two people this time, Andrew Papoy and Mark Prudeau, colored by Brad Vancata, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Saida Temofonte. This issue begins with Bishop running at Malcolm and yelling, YAR! Like he is now a pirate, which he is alas not yet. He does have that red bandana. That's kind of piratey. Yeah, or he wants to indicate that he's into fisting. See, I mainly remember Bishop uh, being drawn by John Romita Jr., which meant he was huge and blocky, and his fists were like the size of my head, and I am troubled. I guess it depends on which side he's wearing that handkerchief. Exactly. Now, Bishop takes down Malcolm and convinces Malcolm to help him save the XSC before knocking Malcolm out for plausible deniability. Bishop tells Malcolm, You let me go. You've already betrayed your duty. Help me won't make that much difference, but it might save the XSE and the fragile peace between humans and mutants. Oh, dude, that's kind of manipulative. But it totally works, and Malcolm just sighs and goes for it. Meanwhile, at Rook headquarters, Randall is doing his best to convince Pulsar that the Rook is going to turn on him in Shadowbox, or at least sees them as totally expendable. Um, and Pulsar absolutely does not believe this, and it degenerates very quickly into it. He does not, does too, does not, nuh-uh. Like, literally, they say does not, does too, does not. They're like children. I wish Randall had won the argument by being like, does two times a billion. Oh, but then Pulsar could say does not times infinity. Does two times infinity plus one. Shit, this escalation works even better in a superhero comic than it did in the playground. So... Uh, the argument's cut off when Shadowbox shows up with XSE uniforms for everyone. Uh, the plan is that they are going to kill Randall and leave his body behind so that it looks like an actual XSE officer was on their side and then killed um, when they, they go commit the crime they're about to commit. Um, Rook, for their part, will be dressed up as Hecate, head of the XSE. Bishop, meanwhile, loops back to re-question uh, Booger, sorry, I mean Specter Blade, who is more helpful this time. Uh, yeah, but the most notable part here with Spectre Blade is that when Bishop lifts Spectre Blade up by his Spectre shirt, Spectre Blade just says, yabba, yabba, yabba. Like, he's so astonishingly goofy in such an out-of-place way. Like, I'm reminded of the old Danish-American 60s monster movie Reptilicus that Mystery Science Theater covered recently. There's this out-of-place, like, comic relief night watchman who goes from this very serious movie, well, it attempts to be serious, the special effects are awful, to all of a sudden him just doing this goofy slapstick like he's fucking Ernest or something. Yabba 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 indeed. Back at XSE headquarters, Malcolm, who is fully on the side of the angels now, goes ahead and frees Shard. And Shard questions whether he's actually working with Bishop, to which Malcolm says... See my chin? Because Bishop had punched him out in order to, you know, make, to give him plausible deniability. 
but, but wait a minute. It's Malcolm's cheek that's all red and swollen, not his chin. You know what? In this dark future, much knowledge has assuredly been lost. And I guess that knowledge includes what the names of different face parts are. Tragic. Now, Malcolm is a by-the-book guy, so he's already gotten Hecate in on this. Like, he's he's doing all of this with official sanctions, so it's not quite as badass as it sounds. And Shard, now free, gets data on the Knox holdings. Turns out, they own a lot of the city, and in fact, they even donated the building that houses the current XSC headquarters. Huh. So let's head back to the Gem Theater, the site of the planned attack, where Rook's forces, the remaining fanatics, are plotting what they're going to be plotting. Our heroes are there, disguised. Bishop is disguised by a robe with a hood. It's like the go-to disguise for any major character in a Star Wars story. He looks like a monk, and it's very. He looks like he looks like a disco monk because he looks like a monk wearing like his tight clubbing robe. And no one else is dressed like that. And I wonder what people think if people are like, "Yeah, it's just, it got, it's an XSC guy again." They think they're being subtle. Just let them go. Just let them have this. It's like where nobody mentioned to Wolverine that they all knew that Patch was really Wolverine because they were a little scared of him, but also they just didn't want to embarrass him. Well, and also it's funnier if you go along with the gag. <laughs> yup. But that's a really good point, though. I've never thought about that, because almost the only people that ever wear, like, the robe with the hood, or the trench coat and fedora, or whatever, are people in disguise. Like, does anyone actually dress that way normally? Everyone dresses that way normally, and it's like the Milkman conspiracy level of, um, Psychonauts. Oh, okay, so it turns out every single person is in disguise somehow. Everybody has an agenda. It's conspiracies upon conspiracies upon conspiracies. Yeah, that's 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 the future. That is the future we're headed towards. Oh god, I was already terrified. Now I'm terrified additionally. It's okay, most of the conspiracies just involve disguises. Oh, well. Well, that's much better. That's just our, uh, that's just a sartorial conspiracy, and I love the word sartorial. Yeah, they're, they're just kind of recursive conspiracies where where you're cons- conspiring in order to conspire. Oh, how deep does this conspire hole go? I mean, which side of the which side is it wearing its bandana on? <laughs> Bringing it back. Anyway, Bishop drops his conspiracy disguise when he sees Randall's corpse apparently brought on stage. But no, it's a fake out. Randall did get through to Pulsar, and Pulsar let him live. Um, so Rook shoots Pulsar, and then everybody fights. That's that's really tragic. But it kind of makes sense. I mean, Randall was desperate. Pulsar became desperate when he realized how bad the situation was. So, of course, the plan is going to completely go to shit because it's not a good plan, even though it's the only plan they had. Like, it's just utter panic. It is pandemonium at this point. I mean, every plan going on here is is pretty much utter shit. Like, Rook's plan is not actually very good either. No, no, no. But the squad is back together, and it is a goddamn delight to get to hear their banter. As Randall says, As the fabled beast is reported to have said, It's my party, but you can die if you want to. To which Malcolm responds, You make up all these quotations, don't you? Bishop chimes in, Ah, the sound of squabbling. Omega Squad is back together. I... I love these goofballs together. Like, I think part of why I love them is we know that Malcolm and Randall are going to die. We know that Shard is going to die even sooner. Like, their futures are shit. And so 
getting to see them just have fun together in this admittedly terrible life or death situation is just nice. It's nice that they got this before everything went to hell. Yeah. Something that that I think we we should have considered before when we were talking about sort of the the framing and the appeal of the XSE stories is that, yeah, every story about this group is kind of fundamentally really bittersweet because you know what they're headed towards. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It uh it works well. I think um Ostrander handles that very, very well. Epting also handles this part well because as they leave the gem theater to go track down the rook, there is this panel of these silhouettes of them all lined up left to right, mid-run, all with one foot and arm forward and one back. And they're silhouettes, but they're these little yellow and red and blue highlights of like their gauntlets and their belts and their bandanas. It is simultaneously very silly and cartoonish and also genuinely heroic and cool looking. They look like speed skaters, which does not diminish the coolness. Speed skaters are rad, and also their thighs are like as thick as my torso typically, which, well, I guess bishops were already anyway. So they shoot a bunch of the rook's backup bodies to force the rook to return to his original body, and... It's young Jimmy Knox, age 13. He is an uncanny evil child, apparently, who killed his parents and has been posing as his father ever since. Yeah, he faked his own death in that car crash. The body he left behind was just one of those organic LMDs that he learned to make from S.H.I.E.L.D. technology. And he's been trying to just mess everything up for the goal of mutant supremacy. Welp. You know... I kind of like this. It's not the most complex, twisty plot, but it is somewhat complex and twisty. And we get to discover it alongside Omega Squad, alongside the XSE, as they, you know, are getting captured and impersonated and framed and stuff. And it's just, like we said before, it's just a fun future science fiction police procedural. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of the mystery and a little bit more that would have enabled us to solve it alongside an alongside Omega Squad. But I think it's it's pretty fun. It is, yeah. And one thing I really like about this is we get to know Omega Squad as a unit and as individuals, I think, a lot better than we have in the past. Like, Malcolm and Randall are way more defined in this series than we've ever seen them. Like, the first time we saw them, they showed up to almost immediately die. And in the previous XSE miniseries, we mainly just learned their most basic of character traits. But in this, they all feel like this... Like like a like a squad. I'm not going to say found family. That's probably overselling it. And also, Lucas and Shard are actual family. But you can tell these are people with history. These are people who enjoy each other and are sometimes exasperated by each other and work really well together. And are all into fisting. One can only assume. Maybe the mullet signifies something about that. Anyway, we have questions about that, for better or for worse. You have questions about other things. Robert asks via email, Do we know canonically how many albums Dazzler has sold? Sometimes she seems to be a massive icon like Madonna, but other times she seems like her singing career is in jeopardy. That is a really good question, because you're right, Robert, it's all over the place the way she's portrayed. It was kind of a big deal in her series initially that she had a really hard time getting off her feet, finding any kind of success. She mostly just did covers, it took her forever to actually record an album— but eventually, yeah, she did get a hit single and an album. Dazzler number 28 referenced that. For the most part, though, it was a lot of struggle. We saw a lot of that even in Dazzler the movie. The big deal with that was that she was starting to get genuinely big. But then after all that, after she got back from the Mojoverse uh, during her stint there in the 90s, 
suddenly she was huge. In 2009's Uncanny X-Men number 508, it was mentioned she had 11 hit singles. We know she has at least one platinum album. That's been referenced. Uh, in a recent Power Man and Iron Fist issue, well, modern anyway, uh, we find out she started her own performing arts school. So yeah, I don't know. It seems sometimes like if it's a Dazzler story, she's struggling a lot. If she's a character in somebody else's story, she's gigantic. The only exception I can think of to that was from the recent Dazzler X song One Shot, where she was an incredibly important, well-known celebrity musician. But even in that, she wasn't the focal character, just sort of the largest looming character. Trish asks via Tumblr, What are adjectives that have yet to be used in front of an X-Men book, such as Uncanny, Astonishing, or All New, that you would enjoy seeing taken advantage of in the future? I know we've made this joke before, but I stand by existentialist. I also like sort of very run-of-the-mill X-adjectives, like the exceptional X-Men. Would that be X-exceptional, or would having two X-dashes in one title be too much, like with Extreme X-Men? No, it would be like Extreme X-Men, the exceptional X-Men. Okay, okay. Although that makes me think about Extraordinary X-Men, which was spelled normally. It could have been X-traordinary X-Men. And it should have been. Well, maybe maybe that's why it wasn't as good as it could have been. Fair enough. The inexplicable X-Men? Oh, that makes me think of one of the ones I was thinking of, the unfathomable X-Men. I don't know what that would be about, but I think Cy Spurrier should probably write it. Yeah, I like that. And I don't think we have to stop with X-Men. Like, we could do Brutal X-Force, but Brutal would have an umlaut over it, like the video game Brutal Legend. And the whole comic book would be like a heavy metal album cover. It would be amazing. What if we sort of went in other directions, so it was more team names, so we had like X-Co-op. Oh, okay, gotcha, yeah. Or X-H-O-A board. Oh, I don't know if I would read that. Ugh. That sounds really stressful. Yeah, yeah no, I, I feel like, I, I I don't know, Krakoa does kind of have HOA vibes sometimes, but it's also kind of a do-your-own-thing space. Well, I say we just lean in, and we have actionable X-Factor. It's all paperwork all the time. It's an office action comedy with lots of bureaucracy. Are you on Val Cooper's payroll, Miles? Wait, I could be getting paid? Speaking of us actually getting paid, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters or concepts. So let's return once again to the golden pipes of the angry Claremontian narrator. Leave it to Alex Magaw to take the obvious and accessible and render it hopelessly Byzantine. Seriously, this is like bureaucracy folded in on itself. How do you even get anything done? Do you even get anything done? And with that, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, we're back to Generation X with the M-Plate Saga. The M-Plate Saga? No, like, with a hyphen. M-plate hyphen saga? No, no, I mean, you know what? Actually, sure. Let's go with that.
You make up all these quotations, don't you? You should give him a heavy Australian accent. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Because he's earned it. I, I had his... I had his voice be very flat earlier, so I'm going to stick with that, but I love that you're normally so anti-accent, and here we are. I, I just really want, I just really think Malcolm should be, should have a heavy Australian accent. I don't know if he should actually be Australian, I just think he should have an Australian accent. You make up all these quotations, don't you? Dingo. Barbie. Something. No! <laughs> Speaking of outtakes, or of, of tags, uh, Matt, if you want to... <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. Bishop chimes in. 